Jenna is a licensed professional counselor in Wisconsin. She has been working with people who have OCD and anxiety since 2008. She currently works as a therapist and is the senior manager of community engagement at NOCD, a teletherapy platform for those who struggle with OCD. She also has a podcast called All the Hard Things to help spread education about OCD and anxiety, as well as exposure and response prevention. She is also a mom to a three and a half year old and struggled with postpartum OCD herself. Please join me in welcoming Jenna to the show. So I am joined with Jenna Overbaugh today. Jenna, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, and thank you so much, Lauren, for having me. I am super excited. Uh, I think these two topics, sex and spirituality, are definitely going to contribute to an awesome podcast today. So my name is Jenna Overbaugh. I am a licensed professional counselor in Wisconsin. I'm also licensed in some other areas of the country, and also I practice in the United Kingdom as well. Um, So I've been working with people who have OCD and anxiety since 2008. and as the years go on, I like I can't even do the math anymore. I feel like it's just longer and longer. I just say 2008 uh, because I knew from a really early age with my own anxiety and my own OCD issues as a child and as an adolescent, I knew that I wanted to work with this community. I knew I wanted to work with this population. Um, so I started really early on just learning as much as I could about OCD and anxiety Uh, Any internship, any project related to this community I wanted to do. Uh, So I've really just been honed in on this community and more importantly, the treatment for it. So uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, a little bit later about what that is, but it's exposure and response prevention. It's the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety. And having worked with this population for so long, I've just fallen in love again and again with the treatment, with the population. And yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. That's incredible. Did you get your master's in counseling psychology? Um, So I got my master's in Baltimore, actually, in clinical psychology. So again, master's, at least for clinical psychology, um, it's very much, you know, you go for the specified population that you want to work with. And so I really wanted to work really closely with the OCD community and do OCD-based research. And so... That's where I was. Um, and then after that, I went on to work at Rogers Memorial Hospital, which is a world-renowned residential facility um, for OCD and anxiety recovery. And so residential, it's one of two or three in the entire world where you can literally go and kind of live there 24-7. Um, and so I got the chance to work for eight or 10 years with people who live in this treatment facility um, who are so debilitated by their OCD, but can also make really awesome strides in the recovery process because it's such an intensive program. So that was really amazing. That's incredible. I asked because I also have my master's in clinical psychology, so I was super intrigued. So you said that uh, you were inspired to work with this population because of your own struggles. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I always identified as an anxious child. Uh, Like my earliest memories are that I was doing things in threes because if I did thing, if I did things twice, or if I did things one time, I thought that a Hanson brother would die. <laughs> I loved Hanson, and I just thought like if I didn't do everything in threes, and I only did things in twos, then one of them was gonna die because say I didn't flip a pancake 
three times. I mean, it, at the time, it felt so real. Obviously, now looking back and knowing what it was, we see how irrational and how illogical and unconnected those things are. But it felt really real to me at the time. I felt like I was responsible for doing things in threes all the time. Otherwise, some someone was going to die. Um, other things, too, I felt like, you know, if I didn't watch this movie at this time then something superstitiously bad was going to happen like a, something was going to happen to me or to my family um then as I got into school years I realized that I became increasingly socially anxious I think also just because it was embarrassing to do ritualistic behavior in front of other kids right and so I didn't feel comfortable going to school the way that other people did um but something that's really interesting is as as anxiety provoking as school was to me and as you know, odd as these behaviors were, from a pretty pretty early age, I knew I don't like to feel this way. I don't like anxiety getting the best of me. This is a mental game for me, and I'm here to compete. And so, even as like a seventh grader, I would be nauseous, not wanting to go to school, and I would be like, "No way, I'm going, I'm going," because I know that if I don't go, I'm going to make it worse, and I'm not signing up for that. And so, I would just like a little worker bee force myself to go and force myself to do these anxiety provoking things because they were anxiety provoking. Like I wanted that. I wanted to challenge myself. And so when I got to college and I learned that exposure and response prevention is exactly that, and it's used to treat anxiety, to treat obsessive compulsive disorder, to treat trauma. I was like, this is everything. Like this is everything that I was meant to do. And so I just zoned in from there. Um, Fast forward a couple years, things were manageable. I kind of knew what was going on. Um, I had a baby. I had my first kiddo, uh, my only kiddo. He's now three and a half, but I struggled hard with postpartum OCD. I mean, I was afraid I had harm intrusive thoughts that I was going to accidentally or on purpose snap his ankles when I was putting socks on him. Um, I became so sleep deprived, as most moms do, that. I, in the middle of the night, I would have the thought, like, was I so sleep deprived that I molested him and I don't remember? Was I so sleep deprived that I beat the crap out of him and I don't remember? And I would spend hours checking him, like looking at his head from every angle and rubbing over his body to make sure that he didn't have a, a gaping wound or something. Um, and that's when it really became really, really bad again. And so I went back, got my own treatment, went through my own exposure therapy and outpatient, and it was uh, incredible. It was incredible, um, totally life-changing, and I would say that now I'm in recovery, um, still have intrusive thoughts all the time, all the time, um, but I'm able to manage them and, you know, take that as a sign that, and, a, and a call that I have to do this thing. If there's something that I don't want to do, I have to do it, and I have to do it hard. So... I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And I would love for you, if someone is new and just hearing about OCD, if we can kind of just describe what that is and de debunk any myths, because a lot of people overuse the term OCD. Absolutely. So if anything out there is kind of ringing true to you, like, oh my gosh, I feel like that I've had thoughts like that too. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder includes two things. Um, so normally it's one or both, but normally it's both. Um, so we have obsessions and then we have compulsions. So obsessions refer to anything that's very intrusive, kind of out of the blue, out of nowhere. Uh, they can kind of hit you like a slap in the face type of thing. 
And these experiences can be intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, urges, or feelings. And so they don't necessarily have to come in the form of an image or a what if thought. They can sometimes come in the form of a command, but they're intrusive in that they're very what we call ego dystonic they're very inconsistent with your values it's like oh my gosh why did i just have that thought that did not come from me that's inconsistent with who i am who i know that i am but why did i have that thought and the reality is is that we all have these intrusive thoughts we all have i mean universally we've done tons of research to determine and suggest that universally we all have these experiences we all have these thoughts that come in out of nowhere that are disruptive that don't necessarily make sense but for the most part individuals can kind of observe these thoughts and and let them come and go like any other thought and we're kind of like well that was weird and then we just move on with our day the way that we would have been had we not had that thought um but for people who struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder they tend to misinterpret that intrusive experience as being significant somehow. Like, oh my gosh, what about me that I had that thought? Does that mean because I had that thought, does that mean that I want that thought? Does that mean that somehow I'm responsible now to act on that thought or to not act on that thought? Like, they they tend to also judge that thought, right? So instead of it just being a neutral thought and not having any characteristic attached to it whatsoever, it's bad, it's disgusting, it's perverted, it's scary. And so all of these judgments and all of these misinterpretations of these experiences being anxiety provoking and being significant leads us to feel a lot of cognitive signs of anxiety, right? Like racing thoughts, we catastrophize, we overestimate the probability of something horrific happening, makes our bodies feel really uncomfortable. So our fight or flight systems are ramping up. Um, Our heartbeat starts racing, our physiological you know, survival systems are on are going haywire just to try to protect ourselves. Because those experiences are so uncomfortable, we feel so responsible, so intolerant of that uncertainty. We feel the need to do some type of compulsion, which is really the the second part of obsessive compulsive disorder. And if you ask me, the driving force, the real true problem. Um, so a compulsion is anything that is intended to negate or neutralize the anxiety that you experience as a result of these obsessions. So compulsions can be literally anything. They can be things that you do behaviorally. They can be things that you do like washing your hands or asking someone for reassurance. Um, Googling online is a really big one. Um, It can even be something like meditating, right? Like if you're meditating repetitively, compulsively with the intention of reducing your anxiety, and if you're doing it in an urgent sense, like, oh my gosh, I have to do this right now, I have to do this right now, anything can become a compulsion. It's all about why you're doing it, right? Are you doing it because you enjoy it? Are you, or are you doing it because I urgently have to do this? If I don't, something bad will happen. That's a compulsion. Um, but outside of behavioral compulsions, you can also have mental compulsions, right? So a lot of times people struggle with mental compulsions and they are like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that my whole life and I never knew that that was OCD. Um, and so a really big one is rumination. Any kind of like mental engaging with a thought, analyzing a thought, trying to mentally review a situation or what happened or um, you can give yourself self-assurance, right? Um, like it's going to be fine. It's no big deal. You, you know, 
other people do this all the time and they don't get sick. There's really no limit to what, again, could be a compulsion. The difficult piece about all of that is that the compulsions work really, really well. They temporarily and really quickly relieve your anxiety. It's kind of like, thank goodness I did that because otherwise something bad would have happened. It really, really instantly kind of uh, instant gratification situation instantly reduces your anxiety. The bad news about that is that by doing the compulsion, you've just negatively reinforced your fear. You've just essentially said, good thing you just did that ritual because otherwise something bad would have happened. So your brain registers that as, okay, that must have been threatening. I will need to protect Jenna or whoever from this again in the future because it obviously must have been threatening. Otherwise, Jenna wouldn't have done that ritual about it. And so in the future, you end up having to rely on more rituals, more significant ritualistic behavior. You become more and more frightened, more and more scared of this thing. It will very quickly generalize to other things. So if you end up being afraid of COVID, um, which a lot of people were and are, um, eventually that can become not just COVID, but other diseases and other sicknesses. And, and it can just really snowball out of control. Yeah, so, so with that is, I think we bust a lot of myths right there, right? That OCD isn't just these physical compulsions. It can be very mental. That OCD isn't something that you do because you like it. It's not like cleaning your house or arranging your furniture because you really like it a certain way and it gives you the sense of pleasure and you're just an organized person. It's these calls to action that that you do not want to do, that you hate, that you despise, and they can be really crippling. They can be extremely debilitating. Absolutely. And I think that it's the significance and the urgency where it takes over your life and you have that impeding sense of doom and gloom and you kind of feel out of control, right? So I would love to talk about comorbid disorders with OCD because personally I struggled with trichotillomania um, and along with that I had body dysmorphia, a bad eating disorder. And I remember I could not leave my house unless I exercised for two hours a day. If I didn't get to that two hour mark, I would time it on my phone. I would call out of work. I would not go to school. It became so obsessive. So are there any common co-occurring disorders along with OCD that you see? For sure. And honestly, it's, it's a lot of what you just mentioned. So um, I'd say the number one kind of most commonly co-occurring disorder is going to be any anxiety disorder. Right. So the big one is going to be generalized anxiety disorder. Um, In fact, I could go on and on about that kind of in its own podcast episode, just about how I think they're not always all that different, like generalized anxiety disorder and OCD. We actually often see a lot of times people have this like generalized anxiety disorder their whole life and then something happens and boom, OCD kind of comes in like a lightning bolt. Um, So that's very common. Um, I would say other anxiety disorders too. So like social anxiety disorder, panic disorder. Um, We're also going to see a lot of comorbid mood disorders. So like major depression. um, And that's to be expected, right? Like especially if your OCD symptoms are so debilitating, you can understand how you start to reduce your involvement in enjoyable activities. It affects your sleep, um, can lead to just general feelings of sadness and melancholy and all of that. Um, but additionally, it's everything that you said, which is uh, hair picking or hair pulling, skin picking, other body focused repetitive behaviors, um, body dysmorphia, and eating disorders. Those are all really commonly experienced. Um, 
But again, I think the the root of all of that is a fear of discomfort and aversion to discomfort, um, a rigidity, <laughs> um, like a need to to fix something inside or externally that doesn't feel right, um, versus the ability to kind of ride that urge, say in hair pulling, or to be able to sit with the uncertainty and obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, you know, and, and the beauty of all of it is, is that the treatment for a lot of these disorders, a lot of it comes back down to exposure and response prevention, or at least some element of it. Um, so I think with that said, like if the treatment is effective, at least in some aspects for all these, these disorders, it just goes to show even further why these disorders are so comorbid with each other in the first place the etiology is is probably rooted somewhere in just this aversion to discomfort this aversion to negative sensations or negative experiences Hmm. yeah for sure that's really interesting i would love to talk about well at the height of my personal experience with ocd i had crippling social anxiety that i was super isolated i wouldn't leave the house how do you know if this is a disorder and abnormal versus something that we just experience day to day? Such a great question. And the reality is, is our goal is not to get someone to have zero anxiety, zero social anxiety, zero obsessive compulsive tendencies, zero generalized anxiety symptoms, right? Anxiety is functional to a certain degree and when it's used in the right context, right? So um, think about a job interview, right? It, it, it kind of, is functional to be a little bit anxious about that. That way you can say practice interview responses. That way you are prompted to go online and look about, look a little bit about um, the job that you're applying for or the organization that you're applying to work with. Um, So anxiety can be a motivating force. It can kind of light a fire under our butts so that we can jump into effective and productive action. The problem is when anxiety becomes too much that we're not able to jump in and take productive, effective action. So for instance, you know, before a job interview, if your anxiety becomes too high that you're like, oh my gosh, no, like I just can't even do this. I'm working myself up. Like I'm just gonna cancel the job interview. That's not effective, productive action. You're not using that anxiety as a meaningful way to help push you forward towards your values and towards your goals. You're not able to keep that anxiety in kind of a manageable level to to show, you know, heightened and, and the best performance possible. Um, it's no longer being used in a functional way. It's it's too much. It's become impairing. And so, and in terms of impairment, those are really the things that we look for: distress and impairment. And that's going to be part of any diagnostic kind of criteria or interview that we're looking for when it comes to social anxiety or any other disorder. Um, you're always going to be asked to consider how much does this problem bother you? How much does social anxiety bother you? How much do these obsessive compulsive symptoms bother you? If you're running around and you have these thoughts all the time and you just kind of let them come, let them go, and you do a couple of behaviors every once in a while to deal with them, but it really doesn't bother you, you know, that might, that might not be criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. And then secondly, we look at impairment. So in what ways are these symptoms interfering with your ability to do the things that you need to do in life, your routine activities, like activities of daily living. So brushing your teeth, eating, taking care of yourself. Um, how is it uh, impacting your ability to do enjoyable and valued activities? Um, So 
So when OCD or any other disorder really starts to cause a lot of bothersomeness and uh, distress, as well as that impairment where it's impairing your day-to-day living, that's when we would be considering more of a diagnosis that would uh, warrant some clinical efforts as far as therapy interventions go. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that anxiety is a normal part of the human condition, right? But it becomes problematic when it interferes with our day-to-day life and our overall um, health and well-being, right? So when it comes to obsessive-compulsive disorder, what are some of the subtypes that people can experience or find themselves? Yeah, and and subtypes are so interesting. Uh, You know, I think that that's something that people use to connect with others, right? Like, I have, oh my gosh, I have harm OCD. They read about it in a forum or someone tells them about that and they feel this, like, validation and that justification like a key went into a lock and everything makes sense and I love that for people um and so I do think that subtypes are really really beneficial um so we have um really common ones and and this is just by nature sometimes people just fall into these categories not just people who have OCD by the way these are universally experienced types of thoughts right so a really big one is harm um, the, the concept or the fear that you would either accidentally or on purpose harm someone or yourself. Um, we also have a lot of people who are coming out saying they have quote unquote suicidal OCD, um, that they don't want to kill themselves, that they don't want to hurt themselves, but they are just are, are inundated with these commands or these thoughts that they would like jump in front of a train or something like that. Um, Another big one is sexual intrusive thoughts. So similar to harm, this concept of did I, like, you know, could I on purpose or on accidentally some way, could I accidentally um, sexually harm or influence someone? Um, so a lot of times I, the big one is pedophilic OCD. So I work with a lot of times people who struggle with fears or intrusions or compulsions around kids. Um, I've worked with so many people who are terrified of leaving their house. I worked with um, a middle-aged man who refused to leave the house without his sunglasses on because he was terrified of seeing a child. He was terrified of seeing a child because if he did, um, then he would be just inundated with all of these thoughts like, well, did you look at her for too long? What does that mean about you? Um you looked at her a second longer than you looked at this other person. What does that mean about you? And so he just, if he did leave his house at all, which was very, very seldom, he would have to wear sunglasses because he didn't, I mean, even in the dead of winter, right? Like he would wear sunglasses because he just wanted to block that, the vision. Um, and so it can just be really debilitating and really crippling. Um, other, other forms that we see often are contamination. Uh, so fears of germs, dirt, uh, whether they're afraid of themselves getting contaminated or contaminating someone else. Um, we also see a lot of perfectionism and need for order or symmetry or kind of this just right. Um, and it's not to say that these media portrayals, like, you know, having to wash your hands a lot or having to have things just so, not that that doesn't happen in OCD, it does. It's just one, not all that happens. And two, if it truly is OCD, Again, it's very debilitating. These individuals do not enjoy it. They are crying either on the inside and or on the outside while they're doing it. They do not want to do it. They they wish that they didn't feel the need to have to do it. Um, 
we also are seeing some other kind of quote-unquote non-traditional um, subtypes coming up as well. So some new ones that have been researched lately are sexual orientation OCD. So this fear that maybe I'm not the sexual orientation that I thought that I was. What if I'm not 100% straight or 100% gay, right? Um, it's all about just, do I, like, what if I just don't know? What if I just don't know? And it's never really, you know, you know, that they have any issues with being straight or any issues with being, you know, homosexual or any other sexual orientation. It's just the the doubt disorder, right? It's the feeling of doubt. Like, I need to know. I need to know 100%. And that's always what it comes back to. We're also seeing a lot of relation, what people would call relationship OCD. So fears that, you know, the person that I'm with, what if it's not the right person? What if I don't love that person 100%? Um, 100% like 100%, I need to know that this is the right person and that we're going to be happy forever and that there's not this alternate alternate um, you know other person or other life that I could be happier in um, there's so many and I'm an advocate for saying OCD can latch on to anything so while I love these subtypes I do think that it locks people in and it gets people connected to other people who are like them I do think that OCD can latch on to anything. And so we're just going to continue to add subtypes and add subtypes and add subtypes. But I don't ever want someone to think like, oh, well, I don't experience those subtypes. Mine is different, so I must not have OCD. Even as I'm talking to you right now, I'm thinking about like real event OCD. A lot of times people feel like they did something in the past, but they feel obsessive and compulsive about that. Like, well, what did that mean about me? Did it really happen that way? I mean, I'm thinking about magical thinking, right? But like, kind of like I was struggling with as a kid, you know, I have to do this this many times, otherwise someone's gonna die. Like there are just so, there's no limit. There's no limit. And I'm sure as I sign off here today, I'm gonna think of like 10 more <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, but the reality is at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter that much. I mean, obviously it's very personal to the person. So it is important in that sense, but it's always exposure and response prevention. So harm OCD is treated the same as real event OCD. Relationship OCD is treated the same as contamination. Obviously, the exposures that you do and the unique treatment, like the, the nitty-gritty of it, will be tailored to you, but it's always exposure and response prevention. All of this, There's no subtype that's more resistant. There's no subtype that's more complicated. It's, it's all personal, and it's always going to come back to exposure and response prevention. Hmm. 100%. I'm thinking so much about the magical thinking and I did an entire episode on relationship OCD because I resonated with that extremely well. And do you think that that could be tied to perfectionism as well? Because I, as someone that's a complete perfectionist at times, find myself having that magical thinking pattern with the relationship OCD. So it's kind of all interconnected, do you think? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, even as you're talking, I'm like, what about scrupulosity? What about scrupulosity? Like, like, there's so many, right? Scrupulosity is just the, the spirituality stuff that obviously we're, we can talk about today too. But yeah, so I think at the core, at the core of all of this, subtypes are kind of like the superficial manifestation of obsessive compulsive disorder. But it's the doubt disorder. That's kind of its nickname when you talk about OCD, the doubt disorder. And that's because at the root of this, it's this intolerance of uncertainty. It's this need to be 100% sure or 100% right. And that's really not all that off from what colloquially you and I know as perfectionism, right? Like it has to be 100%. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think at the root of this, it's always going to be that intolerance of uncertainty. It's going to be that doubt that like, ugh, it's just, it's not a hundred percent. It's not a hundred percent. It's that rigidity that need to have it be perfect. Um, and that's what exposure and response prevention targets. It's all about tolerating uncertainty, being more flexible, being able to be okay with things that are not necessarily perfect or exactly the way that you would want it. So definitely, I definitely believe and could see how in all of the subtypes, it always comes back to doubt, intolerance of uncertainty, this rigidity, wanting to have things be just right, just so and perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd love to talk more about scrupulosity um, and that experience that those individuals might have, because that's a term that I didn't even know existed until a couple months ago. Yeah, so scrupulosity is really in reference to when obsessive compulsive disorder kind of attaches on to moral beliefs or um, religious concerns. So, and it can happen across any type of religion. It can happen with just spirituality in general. So um, even if you're not, you know, identifying with any specific religion it can just be if you're just a spiritual person it can definitely affect that too so um a lot of the obsessions that we see with people who struggle with scrupulosity are going to be like am i going to heaven like am i going to go to hell does am i living life the way that god would want me to um you know any kind of existential or philosophical kind of thought like that these unanswerable questions um i think that scrupulosity is difficult for people because it, it you know religion and, and spirituality there there's no certainty about that it's all about faith right like this this feeling of faith um you know no one knows if there's a god no one knows what happens after we die no one knows 100 percent whether they're a good person and if you believe in that whether you're gonna go to heaven or go to hell or whatever and and that is could be so triggering for someone who is terrified of that right because it is it's faith and faith in and of itself is uncertain you just have to kind of roll the dice and hope for the best right you can feel really really strongly about it but as, even if you have the strongest faith in the world you're still not 100 percent certain you can't be 100 percent certain about anything and so yeah so some of the compulsions that we see for people who struggle with scrupulosity might be um you know compulsively praying praying doing whatever spiritual activities or religious beliefs that they feel like they need to do and again it's not that in our in exposure and response prevention we don't want to prevent someone from not doing that we don't want to prevent someone like you can never pray again it's just it's like eating right it's it's like exercise it's like you can take this thing and you can use it really compulsively you can do it because you feel bad when you don't you can do it out of a sense of doom and gloom and urgency, like you said. Or you can do it because you like to do it, and it's part of your values, and you're in control of whether you're doing it. So, so many times I work with people who pray compulsively, right? Like, they have to pray before they eat. They pray before they leave their house. They pray before they shower. They pray before they take a, a single bite of food or a sip of water. And it's like, that's not the relationship that your God wants you to have, <laughs> right? Like, that's that's not what you want. And so it's about learning how to, how can you have a healthy relationship with your religion? How can you have a healthy relationship with your spirituality without feeling the need to do it out of fear? Mm. Yeah. So much of it is driven by fear and this need for control. And at the same time, it's so confusing and scary because you feel so out of control. So with that being said, I'd love to talk more about sexually intrusive thoughts and 
kind of how the treatment modalities tie into that, because I could imagine that could be extremely scary for individuals struggling. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. And so you can imagine, so let's just take the, so I'll take a step back here. So when we're talking about sexual intrusive thoughts, again, this can be fears that you will either on purpose kind of lash out and just lose control of your impulses and do something sexual to someone else. And it doesn't always have to be a kid, but there is something really interesting and kind of cool, um, a term in the OCD world called the the Arnold Schwarzenegger effect, where no one has harm intrusive thoughts or sexual intrusive thoughts about Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Because he's big and he's burly and he would kick our butts, right? So the Arnold Schwarzenegger effect refers to the fact that when it comes to OCD, especially when it comes to harm intrusive thoughts or sexual intrusive thoughts, it tends to always be around people who are vulnerable. So it tends to be around elderly individuals. It tends to be around women. I see a lot of difficulty with, say, pregnant women or like immunocompromised individuals who are like frail and fragile. Um, And then we get kids in there, right? So we get kids and we get babies. Um, So really this like vulnerable population, it always comes down to like, oh my gosh, they're so vulnerable. What if I was this bad person? What if I just like lashed out when I lost control of my impulses? Um, And so they get this intrusive thought in their heads, right? That either they looked at someone too long. It's also really common in postpartum OCD. So again, this is just OCD in the perinatal or postpartum um, period. And so I hear a lot of moms, a lot of dads, and just significant caregivers like, did I look at his private parts for too long when I was changing his diaper? What does that mean about me? Um, and then they, they give into a lot of fears, say, about like not wanting to change their kid's diaper, not wanting to touch them down there. Um, not wanting to, you know, be responsible for bath time because they just don't want to look down there or have anything going on. Um, and so again, they have these obsessions. What if I am a pedophile? What if I wanted to do that? What if I did that one day? They experience a lot of anxiety. So these are not individuals who say actually like these thoughts, right? They're very disturbed by these thoughts. They're very egotistonic. They do not want to have these thoughts. Their anxiety is so crippling and so debilitating that, again, they are the last ones to be alone with the child. They're the last ones to go out in public where children might be. And so, um, not to be confused with, like, pedophilia, right? So, people who are actually invested in these thoughts and these desires actually want them. That's not what we're dealing with. Um, So, what we would do with anyone, we would always start with really good, solid psychoeducation and just normalizing that these intrusive thoughts are happening universally, kind of just like I described in the beginning, right? Um, I would go through the basic OCD cycle and just provide them, especially when it comes to sexual intrusive thoughts, a lot of normalizing of these experiences, how debilitating it must have been, but that they're not alone, that this is commonly experienced in OCD. And then we would you know, jump into it whenever they're ready for it, we would start to do exposure and response prevention. So with exposures, right, exposures are simply where we have these individuals go out of their way to do something anxiety provoking. Um, So exposures for this person or someone with these thoughts might be to look at a picture of a child fully clothed, right? Um, Might then also graduate to do exposures that are a little bit more challenging, say looking at a picture of a child in a bathing suit, say like on a JCPenney ad or something like that, right? And our goal is to always have them do things that like I would do, 
right? I, I mean, my, I had to dress my son in a bathing suit before he left. Right now, he's with his dad. I had to change his his undies. I had to put a bathing suit on him. Like these are all things that we have to do on a normal day to day basis. We're not looking at child porn. We're not doing anything ridiculous. I'm not having them hug children that aren't theirs, right? Like we're not going that far. We're just trying to get them to live a more meaningful life, like you and I do. Um, and so it's necessary for them to do those exposures because they need to know that their feared events, i.e., you know, lashing out and doing a pedophilic act or molesting a, an elderly woman or whatever, um, that their feared event isn't as as likely to happen as they think. Um, that in the event that they do say look at a child two seconds longer than they think is appropriate that that's not actually catastrophic that that doesn't equal molestation um and that they don't need to do these rituals that you don't need to wear sunglasses for example in public to prevent yourself from lashing out that you can go out in public and it might be uncomfortable but it's not dangerous um so we're working with them on exposures that are tailored to what it is that they're triggered by but we're also reducing and trying to help them resist their rituals or their compulsions or their safety behaviors so for instance like no uh wearing sunglasses out right um because if you continue to do the exposure but you are engaging constantly in the rituals that you used to do it interferes with the learning it interferes with the learning that takes place with the treatment. So um, it's really important to do the exposures. It's just as important, if not more important, to resist and start to reduce those rituals um, and those safety behaviors that normally you would do to try to make yourself feel better. Hmm. That's so cool. And and I know that exposure and response prevention is it's backed by a ton of research. So if someone's starting this treatment, what could they expect? Yeah, and, and it is so backed by research. It is um, in my most recent um, learning and research that I've, I've done myself, um, it is more effective for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment for any other disorder. And so while some of you out there might be listening for the first time and be like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. I would never be able to do that. You could do it, and I will tell you why, um, but I get it, right? Like it, it, it does seem counterintuitive. But isn't that what we want, right? Like, isn't that what we want? We want something that's counterintuitive to the way that we've been living because the way that we've been living, especially if you have OCD, probably isn't very satisfactory, right? So um, it is backed by tons of research and you get a lot of bang for your buck. So as awful as having OCD is and as scary or intimidating as the treatment might sound initially, it is the most effective for OCD and anxiety. And it's more effective for those disorders than any other treatment for any other disorder. So again, really good bang for your buck. We see really, really excellent outcomes with this, with or without medication. Um, And so if you're kind of just learning about it, what to expect, some things, you know, outside of just knowing that if you do it and you listen to your therapist and you have that really excellent, good guidance, um, you will, chances are you will probably get better. Um, You know, it's a very skills-based intervention, so you're going to be given challenges, you're going to be given tasks that you need to do in session and outside of session. Um, It's kind of like a lifestyle change. Your therapist will work with you to basically have a new relationship with your intrusive thoughts, to basically have a new relationship with anxiety and discomfort. And that's something that will definitely take time and take practice. 
I'd also say that a good therapist will work with you and, and collaborate with you to make it so that your exposures are challenging but manageable. So whatever your worst fear is, you know, the 10 out of 10 on your anxiety rating scale, the most anxiety-provoking thing that you could possibly imagine, a good therapist isn't going to just make you do that, right? So what we do at NoCD and what, what I've done at, in all my practice with people um, is that we try to have exposures be challenging but manageable so if we for instance use a 0 to 10 scale um, to kind of monitor how distressing an exposure would be for you um, 0 being not anxiety provoking at all 10 being the most anxiety provoking that you could possibly imagine we're going to try to find exposures for you that are like a 3 or a 4 so they're a little bit challenging and maybe on your own you might not be able to do it but since we're here together you know we're going to try to do it together will push you a little bit but it's not super easy either um, and it's not overwhelming and in that regard as well um, the other thing that I would want people with OCD to know is that you need exposure and response prevention you cannot benefit from just say a general talk therapist um, so I work unfortunately with so many people who have slam dunk cases of OCD that would be super fitting for exposure and response prevention. I could pretty much just rattle off their whole entire fear hierarchy off the top of my head, but they've been with a talk therapist for the past 10 years and they're not getting better. Um, and when I say talk therapy, that's simply like what you think of when you just go to therapy. Um, and that might be helpful for some people. It might be helpful for some disorders. But for OCD specifically, not only is it not helpful, it can actually be detrimental. Um, and the reason for that is in traditional quote-unquote talk therapy, where it's kind of unstructured, you go in, you don't really have an agenda, you're kind of just talking about how you feel, you don't really necessarily have goals or homework assignments, but you know, you just kind of talk about how you feel. And the therapist might be wonderful. The therapist might be warm and empathic and non-judgmental um, and kind of just reflect everything back to you. Maybe try to talk about your past a little bit. Um, but what that does with OCD is one, in all of that, you're not addressing the behavioral issues, right? So you're not addressing the compulsive acts, right? Um, you can talk about a problem all you want, but with OCD, you really need to have that behavioral change. You need that behavioral intervention. And as long as you're just talking about the issue, but you're not actually changing the behavior and reducing the rituals, you're going to continue to struggle. And then the second piece of why talk therapy can not only be not helpful, but also detrimental to OCD is that it acts as reassurance, right? So a lot of times people with OCD, let's say if someone has health anxiety, you know, health OCD or somatic OCD, and they just want to go to a therapist and talk about, you know, all these bumps on their bodies or how they had these extreme headaches and they feel like they have cancer, so on and so forth. A talk therapist who's not elaborating um, or coming at it from an OCD mindset or an ERP mindset might just listen to that and listen to that and listen to that and listen to that and validate that and further reinforce that or encourage them to go to the doctor. Whereas me, I'm going to listen to that for about a minute and then I'm going to say, okay, what are your rituals right now? What's, what's a great exposure that we could do together right now about this? And then we're going to jump into an exposure where we say, look up the symptoms of cancer. And we sit with that discomfort and we let our anxiety come up naturally. We let it come down naturally. We do what's called habituation, which is basically where you just get used to your anxiety without letting anything kind of interfere with that. Um, and basically they learn that they don't need to do these rituals. You don't need to go immediately and see a doctor. 
maybe you have cancer, maybe you don't, but you become willing to not engage in these ritualistic behaviors all day, every day, because you know that ultimately they're not helpful. Yeah, that's super important. Very well said. It's, it's getting comfortable in that discomfort. So if someone knows they need to seek additional help, what are some resources? And if you could talk about the app a little bit more. For sure. Yeah. So, um, as I said, definitely trying to get in with someone who does exposure and response prevention. That is absolutely key. There are some directories that you could find on psychology today or on the international OCD foundation website, but I will warn you, um, not everyone on those directories does exposure and response prevention. So, um, it's really important to do your own research to, you know, ask this therapist, what is your training in exposure and response prevention? Just because they say they're trained in it, or just because they say that they do it does not mean that they'll actually do it the way that I would want it to be done. Um, what I can say, the best place to go for exposure and response prevention, and it's not just because I work there, I feel really passionately about our mission, and I, I love the training that we do for not just what I've received, but for other therapists all across the country. The best place to get this treatment is NoCD. So it's NOCD. Um, you can find it at www.nocd.com. Um, it's a mobile teletherapy platform uh, where you can have live sessions with a therapist who is trained in exposure and response prevention. Um, and I can say that if you have a therapist at NoCD, they have some of the highest quality training that you could possibly get. Um, we have a lot of kind of experts in the field working for us at this point. Um, those experts are working with our therapists one-on-one -on -one to train them, to supervise them. We have excellent training, excellent supervision with some of the most well-known OCD professionals in the entire world. Um, and so if you have OCD, if you really want good, high-quality exposure and response prevention, going to NoCD is going to be your best, the best bang for your buck. Um, so you can also download our free app. Um, we have lots of good exposure and anxiety tools on there. Um, it's just available. It's, it's free on the marketplace. Something else that's really awesome that we offer and I help manage the program um, is our support groups. We offer free support groups um, and you do not have to be involved in therapy or in no city services to benefit from them. So they're completely free, completely no pressure. You do not need to be involved in no city in order to join. Um, so we offer at this point somewhere between like 25 and 30 separate groups throughout the week, including uh, nighttime groups. We have weekend groups. Um, they're all peer based. And so you'll be going and you'll be in a group with other people who have OCD just like you. Um, you do not need a diagnosis to come. If you feel like you have it, then come, come and join us. Um, we have support groups that are just general managing OCD. We have subtype specific groups. We have OCD and depression groups. Um, we have groups on maintaining recovery. We have groups on um, new to OCD therapy. We also have support groups for people who, um, they're like the supporters of people who have OCD, so caregivers, parents, stuff like that. Um, and you can access that list of support groups on our app. So there's a little graphic um, on the front page of the app that says introducing support groups. Um, and yeah, no CD is incredible. You're going to have live sessions um, one or two times a week with a therapist, um, up to 30, 30 minutes to an hour, kind of whatever it is that, that fits your needs. And we also recently started adding to kind of our repertoire of what we treat. We've added, like you've mentioned, um, hair pulling. 
uh, skin picking, other body-focused repetitive behaviors. We work with individuals who struggle with hoarding. Um, so if you feel like you're out there and you're struggling with OCD or any of those related issues, give us a call. We do free 15-minute phone calls. Um, you'll speak with our care team and they will guide you in the right direction. We also try to get people set up with services. It's not always promised, but within seven days um, is kind of our goal. Um, so we're currently available um, all throughout the United States in every single state. We also work at this time in Australia, the United Kingdom, and Ontario, Canada. Um, and we do take insurance. We take some insurances. We do self-pay. We have payment plans. Um, and I'm just such a nerd for, for No Cities Mission. So yeah. come and hang out with us. Come and just make the call. Just make the call. We're wonderful. Yeah. That's the first step, and that's incredible. It's really great work, and it's so imperative when you're struggling with a mental health challenge to know that you're not alone in, in mm -hmm. your challenges. So can you tell us about podcast? Yeah. Um, I, I, I forget about my podcast every <laughs> once in a while. Um, but I, I kind of try to re for, I try to just have fun with it. So I kind of forget about it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, I also have a podcast. It's called all the hard things. Um, so it's all about obsessive compulsive disorder. It's all about anxiety, mental health, um, exposure and response prevention. It's available on all podcast platforms. So wherever you find your podcasts, um, again, it's called all the hard things. And we have a specific focus just on what it means to do the difficult stuff in life and how to have the the courage to do that, how to have the courage to do things scared and, and do them anyway, and, and how you have to have courage first, and then you'll build that confidence after. So um, if you're looking for resources about what what is OCD, what is exposure and response prevention, or if you're already doing it, but and you need some, you know, some questions about how, do, what do I sit with during exposures? How do I do exposures? How do I do my own exposures without a therapist? Um, really, really great resources on there. So I'm also on Instagram. Um, I have a lot of good educational information, again, about OCD and exposure and response prevention. On my Instagram, I'm just at jenna.overbaugh. Um, and yeah, I, I would love to, to contribute anytime anyone reaches out and says that they like called therapy or they got started with therapy because of what they found on Instagram, whether it was mine or on someone else's Instagram, I'm like so touched because you forget sometimes how how many people you can reach just on social media it's it's really a wonderful resource and the OCD community on Instagram is really strong so I would encourage anyone out there to find some of the really great Instagram accounts about OCD you can find a lot of them on my page I'll I share them often I follow them so come and find me and I wish everyone the best of luck on that journey because it, it's it's scary, but it's totally doable and you are not alone. Yeah, it's so empowering. So if people wanted to find you, the best place would be uh, Instagram? Yeah, Instagram at jenna.overbaugh. And I have a little link in my bio too of, of, of where you can find my podcast, um, how to find No CD. No CD's Instagram is over at, at treatmyocd. So I'm on there quite often as well. So, so yeah, that's where you can find me. Beautiful, and I will link all of those in the show notes today. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jenna. This has been really fun, and I'm sure this is going to impact and help a lot of people. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me, and I wish all of you the best of luck in your recovery out there.